Amen. You grab your Bible, turn to the book of James. We've been making our way through James. You know, your life, I don't know if you've thought about this recently, is the sum total of a tiny million decisions. Doesn't matter what your New Year's resolutions uh, were, it doesn't matter you know, your grand vision. It doesn't matter if you have a vision board for your life hanging on the wall at home. Your life is never more than the combination of the million tiny decisions that you make on a daily basis. Even just even getting here this morning, think about all the decisions you had to make. Like for me, when I woke up, it was how many times am I going to hit the snooze on my phone? It's definitely going to be one. Is it going to be one or two or more than that, I'm up for whatever on today, but it was a decision I had to make, and then I like to look over, you know, my message on Sunday mornings, and so was it going to be from the couch, or was it going to be from my office? It was a decision I had to make, and then I'm a man, am I going to take a shower, or am I just going to put on extra cologne? You know, it's either <laughs> either one, I opted for the shower to, today, I think, now that I'm thinking about it, I think, yes, I did, and, uh, you know, um, then getting dressed. You know, maybe a complicated decision for you, a pretty simple decision for me. Is it black or is it navy? It's going to be one of those two, only colors that I own. Literally, every once in a while, I'll mix in a gray just for some contrast, but uh, black and navy. And I chose black today. I'm proud of it. I feel good about my decision. I don't know how you're feeling, but I feel good about it. And then on my way to church this morning, what drink am I going to get? Is it going to be a cold, large, unsweet iced tea? Is it going to be a hot coffee? And I opted for the large, unsweet tea. It's just a million decisions that. You've had to make even just to get you here, and that's where your life comes from. Your life doesn't come from grand visions. Your life doesn't come from grand commitments. It's a million tiny decisions. And here's the the rub as a Christian is God has not spoken clearly about most of those decisions. He hasn't given you a big detailed plan about, you know, Leviticus 7. And in the year of Hezekiah, in the fourth month, God says, choose black over navy. There's There's no plan for that. There's no... When do I do this? When do I do that? Even more serious stuff, you know, there's some big stuff about parenting. There's some general ideas, but the specifics, the little decisions of parenting, that's not in here. And that's why we need wisdom. And that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is your ability and my ability to make decisions that reflect the heart of God when it's not been expressed clearly. There are things, lots of things that have been expressed clearly in the scripture. If you're dating somebody today and you're like, but for economics sake, for love's sake, for trial and error sake, let's move in together. The Bible has spoken clearly about that. You shouldn't do it. That's clear. But whether or not you should date this guy, that's not in here. His name is not floating around with the year 2016 next to it. So you're going to need wisdom for that. Wisdom is our ability to make decisions that reflect the heart of God when it's not been expressed clearly. And that's what James is, is leading us into today, the wisdom of, of heaven. And the, the idea is, will we make those million tiny decisions with heaven's wisdom or with something else? This is what it says in verse 13 of chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? He should show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and lie in defiance of the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. 
For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every kind of evil. But when the wisdom from above is fierce pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruit, without favoritism and hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we read that, the wisdom from above, heaven's wisdom, we all want that. All of us. Even if your heart is a little out of tune with what we're doing today, and you're just kind of going through the motions, if we really pinned you down, you would say, yes, I want to live with heaven's wisdom. If you've shown up to church more than once, then you want these things to be a part of your life. But we've all had good intentions that have been undermined from something else. Like when Amanda and I first were married, I was a member of the Bally's, you know, the workout place, and I signed up, did a prepay thing because it was a good idea, and I just wanted to flush my money down the toilet. It was fine, and and I would go pretty regularly, pretty regularly. I was actually talking with Amanda about it yesterday, just trying to retell the story so that all of the story was true. And she's like, I don't remember you going to work out. So that was kind of the total of my workout experience. But I did. I went all the time. And I would go early in the morning, like at 6, you know, and I'd work out for an hour or 10 minutes, you know. Sometimes I would just do that thing where I touch the machines instead of actually using them and then go back and get in my car. But I work out regularly because my boss at the time, he was like a workout fiend. And when he would preach, like his muscles would just bulge out of his, similar to what's happening here, obviously. But <laughs> they would, they would just flex. And he wore those little tight shirts, I think, as a way to let us all know that he was working out. And, and so he's working out all the time. So even if you only worked out three days a week, you were lazy compared to him. So I would go early in the morning, I would work out. And then I would get back in my car and in the parking lot of the gym, not next door, not across the street, not, you know, a few steps over, in the parking lot of the gym, a Chick-fil-A on one side and a Grandy's on the other side. If you're not on board with Grandy's, Grandy's is Chick-fil-A but smothered in gravy. That is what I was confronted with every morning after I would work out. And so I would go and work out and I would swim and I would lift weights and I would run on the treadmill and I would do all the thing and then I'd get on the parking lot and I would be hungry from the workout I had just had. Plus it's morning time and that siren call to the Chick-fil-A or the Grandies was almost more than I could resist. And I would find myself most often, most days in the drive-thru. Sometimes I would bring a banana you know, to work out because I knew, well, if I just had something to eat when I get back in my truck, then I won't go to the Chick-fil-A. And then I would get in my car and I would look at my banana and then I would look at the Chick-fil-A and look back at the banana. And so I would eat the banana and then go to the Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Good intentions undermined. And that's the message from James chapter 3 for us today is all of us want wisdom from heaven. All of us do. Not one person in here, like, man, I will pass on that. We all want it, but two things are going to undermine it. Selfish ambition and envy. That's what it says here. Look at verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and lie and define so the truth. And then he mentions it again in verse 16. For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every kind of of evil, bitter envy. That word bitter, it's it's a it's an awful smell. It's you know pungent. It's 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 awful. It makes your face squeeze. And then envy is it's jealousy, but it's a jealousy that has some heat coming off of it. It's not a passive jealousy. It's not 
you know, you see something else that somebody has or you're flipping through a magazine and you say to yourself, man, that would be nice if, if I had that. It's not that kind of jealousy. It's a, a, a jealousy that is hot. It's, it's passionate. It has heat to it. There's a competitiveness to this kind of envy. And then selfish ambition, it's drive, but it's drive that causes fractures in relationships. See, every person in here, and specifically, I think, in my opinion, the men, you should have some drive. If you're a young man and you're in your 20s or 30s, like you should have some drive. You should want to succeed. You should want to work hard. I believe that God wired you up for the ability to put food on tables and protect homes and lead homes. And you can't do that without drive. There's nothing more annoying to me than a 26-year-old who's just hanging out playing video games because it's not, there's no drive there and drive is important. But drive is different than selfish ambition because it's drive at the expense of someone else. It's drive that's going to cause relationships to be divided and not be United, it's not drive for the benefit of provision, it's drive for the benefit of being better than someone else. And those two things, they undermine our spiritual intention and desire for heaven's wisdom. So how do I know when selfish ambition and bitter envy have taken root in my life? Well, he gives us a list, and if these things are true about you, then you know and I know that we're being led not with the wisdom of heaven but a wisdom that comes from somewhere else. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition, verse 14, in your heart, don't brag and lie in defiance of the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, and here he's going to describe it, but is earthly. It's earthly. That means the values of the earth are present in your life and not the values of heaven. As a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit has taken residence in your life you have been transformed. You're a new creature, new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So there should be some things in you that do not resonate with the world. Meaning that there should be some things that your spirit inside of you does not want to participate in. Should not receive. There should be some things that provoke your spirit. So when you're watching things on television and you see something flash up, you should cringe at that. You should want to put distance between you and that thing. There should be some conversations that happen at work or among friends that your spirit reacts to, that you want to put distance there, that that thing and you are not of the same nature. You, you shouldn't be in the same place, in the same circle. Your spirit should be provoked often when you're living in this world. So if you are the kind of Christian that's like, no, my spirit's never provoked. I never feel any conviction. I never feel like I shouldn't be watching that or I shouldn't be participating in that or I shouldn't be listening to that. Then you know, and I know that we're being led not with the wisdom of heaven, but a wisdom that comes from somewhere else because selfish ambition and envy are wisdom that's earthly. And then he goes on and he says sensual which means to appeal to your five senses. And usually in the scripture, there's a sexual overtone with the word sensual. You just ask yourself, just examine. How much of my sexual thinking, sexual activity, happens outside of my relationship with my spouse? Now, we're all tempted, and there's no temptation that's not common to man, the scriptures say. 
But there's a difference between temptation and there is a undeniable and almost unexplainable pull between me and our over-sexualized culture. There's a difference between, oh, that flashed in my mind and I'm or in, in, on my screen and I'm kind of tempted to look at it. There's a difference between that and, of course, I looked at it and, of course, I sought it out. I just can't pull away from that tractor beam. That is you and I being led by a wisdom that's not from heaven, wisdom that is very much of this earth because it's sensual in nature. So if your life is over-sexualized and any of it is happening outside any of your thinking is happening outside of your relationship with your spouse, then you can know this is not heaven's wisdom. This is coming from somewhere else. Next, he says, demonic, which means of demons. It's, it's the kind of wisdoms that, wisdom that demons would use. If you're trying to figure out, should I do this or should I do not, one test is, would a demon do this? If a demon would do it, don't do it. Just, I'm not a professional pastor, but in my mind, I just feel like that's... A good place to start. It's demonic. It's from hell. One way you can know that you're being influenced by demons. And that happens, right? We know that happens from the scripture because everywhere that Jesus goes, demons are being provoked out of people. So we see all these people who are under the influence of demons. But in our minds, it's like, well, I guess that just happened in Jesus' day. No, that totally happens in our day. One of our problems is we're probably not filled with the Holy Spirit to the measure that Jesus was. Our mindset is not a mindset of ministry. So when we walk around, we are not provoking that darkness with the intensity of our light. We are so clouded and gray that it doesn't provoke them in the way that Jesus did. But many, many people, maybe many in this room, are currently under the influence of demons. And here's how the, one of the ways that you can know. If you have been on a slow ride towards darkness... If you look back in your life and you say, man, there was a time in my life where my life was filled with light, when my mind was set on holy things, where just everything was both filled with light and felt lighter, but now I look around and all I see is darkness, then you are probably under the influence of something demonic. And they're crafty, so they don't just throw you into the deep end of darkness. They pull you in one small step at a time. And that's wisdom that doesn't come from heaven. Wisdom and decisions that lead you towards darkness are not from heaven. They are from hell. And they are demonic, the scripture says here. For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder. There is disorder. You know, when it comes to envy and selfish ambition... We usually have an opponent in our mind, especially those of us who have a competitive nature, right? Having an opponent, you know, helps us strive and achieve. And I guess there are situations in which that can be healthy, but probably most of the time it's not. And for most of us living in Cypress, Texas, we have, you know, there's always a poster family of everything that we want to be and wish that we were. And literally we know them because they are actually on the poster, you know, the publicity for the school. It's that family that's doing a prom pose with one another and they got their bubble and everything and, and you see them and just something cringes in you and just flares up in you when you see this family, right, in our suburban context. And usually this family has a few things going for them 
that bothers us. First, there's an appearance of wealth. They just get to, to do whatever they want. That's what we see, right? They're one of those families. Like, you want to go on vacation? Sure, let me just pull out the thousands of dollars out of my pocket. I don't need to plan or anything like that. Just do whatever. You want that car? It's great. We can just go and buy it, and we'll buy it in cash even. They just have, they just seem to have everything that they want whenever they want it, and there's no obstacle for them. Money is not an object for them. Maybe they're not super wealthy, but they just kind of get to do whatever they want. And usually, number two, their kids do everything and succeed at everything which just drives you crazy. Mediocrity is not a word in their family. It's a word in your family, but it's not a word in their family. They move from flag football to tackle football to club baseball to club basketball to back to flag football, plus they play the violin, plus they sing perfectly. They just have all the strengths. Their kids have all the strengths. Listen, if you are telling people that your kids have all the strengths You're wrong. They don't have the strengths. Your kids are awesome, but they got weaknesses. They're not great at everything. But this family's kids are great at everything, and it drives you crazy. And then they're so well connected. They can walk into any room, this family, and it's like they are prom king and prom queen. Everybody just kisses their ring when they come in. (laughs) I've arrived. I've arrived. And people do it, and you're like, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. I want people to kiss my ring. I know what they can kiss, actually. They can kiss. Listen. I ain't afraid to say it. We've all thought it. Drives you crazy. People drive you crazy. So what are our options? Our options are either to... A, pretend that it doesn't bother us, which it does, or to try to be at their level. So what do we do? They have an appearance of wealth, so we're going to have an appearance of wealth. They went to Disney World. By golly, we're going to Disney World. Can we afford it? No, but who cares? We're going. Visa's going to loan us the money. They got a new car. We're going to get a new car. It's going to be used, but we're going to make it appear that it's, it's new. They're doing this, we're going to do this. Why, why should they get to do that? We, we're better people than them. We should, we should be able to do these things. And so we project a, an appearance of wealth, and all we're really building up is debt and stuff that we can't afford. And listen, there's nothing that feels more disorderly in our lives than when we don't have enough money to sustain our lives. It's a horrible, horrible feeling. And I'm sure at some point in your life, all of us have felt that where our expenses and our income are way too close. And it just makes life feel chaotic. And then our kids, we got to compete. Now, we're not saying that we're going to compete because all this is happening subconsciously in our minds. But we start signing up our kids for stuff that they don't even really want to do or they want to do today because they're kids. And they're like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. But then we're doing this and we're doing that and we're doing this. And what happens is we sign up for so much stuff that then the mom and dad just become passing ships in the night. Hey, I'm on my way to this thing, and you're on their way to this thing. We'll see you at night to tuck in the kids. And then we're so tired that as soon as the kids are in bed, we're in bed, which is fine one night a week, two nights a week. But some of us are doing that every night of the week in every season of every year. 
So it's not even after this one season is over, there's going to be some relief. No, we've signed up for that all the time. So now my marriage is in disorder, not because somebody did something wrong or we don't love one another. We just don't have time to spend together. And we want to go on a date, but they've got this and the kids got this and the kids got that. And then what happens is your kids, they don't want to be professional athletes, most of them. They don't want to be professional musicians, most of them at this time. But we're treating them as if there is this future. And really what they want to do is they want to play outside. They want to play outside and they want to do one thing. They want to do two things, but they don't want to do everything. And now I don't even get to connect with my kids because mom and dad are passing like this in the night. Marriage is being eroded at the foundation slowly and surely. And now my relationship with my kids is just based on what they're doing. And most of my conversations with them now is how is practice? How is this? How is that? There's no... Let's go and throw the ball out. You want to ride your bike? Let's go ride bikes. We don't have time for that anymore. And we don't know why. And really, if we just backed it up, it's because in our minds, there's this poster family somewhere that we're trying to become like, trying to outdo. And there at the heart of my busy schedule is not love for my kids. It's selfish ambition and envy. And it causes disorder. And then it says, an evil of every kind. And we might be tempted to just jump straight to murder and adultery, but let's just talk about the baby steps of evil. It opens the door for the baby steps of evil because selfish ambition and envy are, are going to come out of you in some way. It comes out in a couple of different ways. It comes out in an excessive desire to get ahead, to accumulate, to have. We have that highlight reel that we like to share with people. We, when we describe what we do, when I describe what I do, there's a way to say it that sounds impressive, and then there's a way to say it that's more like it is. And we all have bios like that. We have the bios we want to share, and we have the bios that are real. But somebody who has selfish ambition and envy in their heart, there's an excessive desire to get ahead and to be ahead. And so we only ever share the highlight reel of our life. We only share about our kids' accomplishments. We don't share about the struggles of being a mom or dad. We only share about the highlights of our marriage. We don't ever share in the appropriate places. The marriage is hard sometimes and connecting is hard sometimes and we're not totally seeing eye to eye. We only share the highlight reels because there's an excessive desire to get ahead There's also can be one of the ways that selfish ambition and envy comes out is not aggression towards other people. It's an aggression towards ourself. And it just looks like uh, we become prisoners of our own insecurity. So our reaction to to the competitive thing that we feel with the poster family is not to outdo them. It's just to turn on ourselves and say, why are we not them? I'll never be them. I'll never be that beautiful. I'll never have that much. I'll never do this. I'll never do this. And we turn on ourselves. And we do that and then we promote it like it's humility. We promote that like it's a virtue. Like, oh, I'm not them. I'm not them. When the root of that is not humility, it is selfish ambition and envy. We do want to become that. But instead of trying to get it, we just turn on ourselves and become insecure and shrink back. And I'll never and I'll never have enough and I'll never be enough. Prisoners of our own 
insecurity as a way to protect ourselves because we think we'll eventually be disappointed. And then the last thing that we often do is if we can't get ahead of them, then we'll just try to bring them down a notch or two. You ever done that? It feels actually pretty good for a second. I would like to say that uh, pastors are exempt from that kind of feeling. In fact, I will. Pastors are exempt from that kind of feeling, (laughs) but we're not. I was in Atlanta couple of months ago and I was sitting around a table with some other pastors and I didn't I didn't really know these guys and they didn't know me that well and so one of them finds out I'm from Houston and and he, he starts talking about this amazing church in our city and I know the church they're talking about and they're kind of we're kind of in the same league as them we started at the same time kind of same situation there are, are you know it's like some of us are not comparing ourselves to Bill Gates and you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Warren Buffett today. We're not like, you know, oh, Bill, he got a new boat, yacht, and I still got this old yacht over here. You know, that we're not doing that. We know they are our league. We're not going to compare ourselves to them. And when we see them succeed, it's like more power to you. But then we have other people that are in our league and we see them succeed. Man, just that flame in me starts to get a little bit hot. And so, you know, there are churches in Houston that, you know, we're like, yeah, we own 30 acres. They're like, we own all of West Houston together. Jesus sent us a check and we just paid for it in cash. And we're like the little dirt, the little spiritual dirt on the bottom of their shoes. And when I hear stories about their churches, I'm like, man, God bless them. We can never be that. We don't even want to be that. They're just so awesome. But then there are other churches, they're like in our league and, you know, I'm a human. And so I'm sitting at a table and this guy's talking up this church and how wonderful it is. And that thing was like, why are you not talking about our church? Our church is the best church in the whole world. And we got the most amazing people in the world, and we're awesome. And, we, and, and he starts talking, talking about math, about how many people they have come and all this. And I know where this church meets and how big their auditorium is and how many services they're doing. And what this guy's saying and the math don't line up. And I feel it just coming out of my mouth, like, don't do it, don't do it. It's not going to be a good thing. And I, so I set the record straight. And all I really said straight was that I'm an idiot. Yeah. Can't help it. Yeah, I can't get ahead, then I'm going to bring them down, you know. And it's just in us. It's just in us. And selfish ambition and envy, it, it's going to come out. And when it comes out, it's going to be a baby step towards evil. And he says all kinds of evil. And you may think, well, what is selfish ambition and envy How does that open a door to all kinds of evil? That feels a little extreme. But look at how he's described those two things. It's earthly. It's sensual or sexualized. It's um, demonic. There's disorder. And if those things run loose in your life long enough, there will be no evil that you are not capable of. Earthliness, sensualness, demonic disorder. If that has free reign over your life, eventually it's not a baby step of evil. It's any step that's possible. All kinds of evil. This is not the wisdom of heaven. But then he goes on to describe what the wisdom of heaven is like. Look at the words he uses. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure 
It's holy. So you're asking yourself, if this, is this a decision I'm making? Is it leading me towards a place of purity or is it leading me away from purity? Is it leading me towards holiness or is it leading me towards more, being more sexualized? Is it leading me towards holiness or away from holiness? And if it's leading you towards, then it is the wisdom of heaven. And then he says, pure and then peace-loving. So it's in contrast to selfish ambition which divides when we love peace that comes from the wisdom of heaven it unites us and that's why he says in verse 18 and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace so if you look at your life and all you see is divided relationships uh, strained relationships estranged relationships It means somebody in that party is not being led by heaven's wisdom, but by the wisdom that comes from ambition and envy and the earth. Because heaven's wisdom is going to bring us closer together, not pull us farther apart. And then gentle. So it's in contrast to the aggressive nature of selfish ambition and envy. And then compliant. Selfish ambition and envy use words like I mine and me. That's one of the ways that you can know that you are filled up with that kind of ambition and are being led with that wisdom is which words are you using all the time? Are you using I and me and mine or are you using we and us and ours? Because wisdom that comes from heaven is wisdom that comes from God and God is a uniter and he invites us into his house together to live as brothers and sisters and so there needs to be a compliance when we're living with one another if we are in fact going to live with one another. But when selfish ambition and envy get in and it's like I want my way and my way is the best way then division comes. So heaven's wisdom makes us compliant. It doesn't mean that we just let everybody do what they want to do. It means together We are humble in unity. And then he says, full of mercy. Selfish ambition and envy, their motto is take no mercy. Take no prisoners. Verse 6, full of good fruit. So the yield off of your life is appealing and attractive and it's good. Without favoritism which means we're going to treat each other according to God's likeness in one another and not according to who our favorite types of people are or who we identify with the most. And without hypocrisy. How many of you, show of hands, have ever heard the phrase Sunday best? Yeah, so, yeah we, we, most of us have heard that. So here's how you know if you're wearing your Sunday best right now. If you are going to go home and change clothes, then you are in your Sunday best. <laughs> It's great, you know, it's, when it comes from a good place, your grandma taught you that, you know, we show respect when we go to the house of God, you know, and so here I am in my suit and tie, and I don't think anybody's rocking that today, but uh, we're bringing our Sunday best, when we're talking about clothes, that's great, there's no problem there, but we've also adopted a, a Sunday best when it comes to behavior, you know, like you, you just ask yourself, am I better behaved at church than I am anywhere else in my life? And I'm guessing for most of us, probably the answer is yes. And that way, we're bringing our Sunday best as well. But that's the problem. Your Sunday best should not be better than your Monday best, and your Tuesday best, and your Thursday best. 
If you want your kids to follow you as you follow Christ. So when your children, for those of you who have young children, when they're of their own free will and they can make their own decisions in a guilt-free environment, if you want them to choose Jesus, then you can't have a Sunday best. If you just have a Sunday best and a Monday worst and a Thursday worster, then your kids are not going to follow in your steps. Because what they want is they want to see my dad was the same. Didn't matter. We had a church or not a church. He was the same. My mom was the same. There wasn't a Sunday version and an in-the-house version. There wasn't an in-the-yard version when people can hear and an in-the-house version. Just all the same. Without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So, the wisdom of heaven, selfish ambition and envy that's in us, what do we do? I love the, just the simple steps that he gives us right here in verse 1. Who is wise and understanding among you? I mean, I think we want to raise our hand, maybe not to say we are wise, but we want to be wise. We want to be understanding. He should show his works by good conduct with wisdom gentleness. So, that's the action step today. Live a... Good life in Jesus' name. Let your conduct be good and be gentle. Don't take on the aggressive nature of selfish ambition and envy. And then he says in verse 16, or excuse me, in verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, here's the action step. Don't brag or lie in defiance of the truth. So big Big ideas, simple steps, right? If you look in and you're like, yeah, there's more ambition in there there should be. There's more envy in me than there should be. Then don't brag and don't lie. That seems like a simple fix for such a big problem. But our words are ambitions and envies PR agents. Selfish ambition and envy without being vocalized cannot exist for very long. Because that's the way that we get ahead, or at least we feel like we get ahead. What's the point of taking a better vacation if you can't tell everybody that you took a better vacation? What's the point of having a bigger bank account if somehow you can't subtly bring up that you have a bigger bank account? What's the point of your kids doing every activity if you're not able to let them know and let people know, my kids do every activity? So if we cut off its outlet, eventually it will dissipate in us. So he says, don't brag. So if your week was amazing this week, maybe your kids don't know the word mediocrity. And not just because you're, you're a very encouraging mom. They just honestly are successful at everything. It's great. Thank God and don't brag. Your kids brought home all A's. Thank God for that. I got that from your spouse. <laughs> it's great. Don't, don't brag. You know, don't, you don't need to drop that on Facebook. You know, like, oh, but I'm proud of my kid. Then here's what you do. You grab that kid, you set him down, knee to knee, eye to eye, and say, I am so proud of you. They don't have an Instagram account. We put it on there. Why? 
PR agents. You have a huge house. Man, thank God for that. That's amazing. Don't brag. You have a medium-sized house? Don't lie and say it's a huge house. You decorated the room? Don't drop the name of an interior designer that you wish designed your room. Don't lie in defiance of the truth. And what will happen if we cut off its outlet? Eventually, we'll feel the pressure of that ambition and envy dissipating. I want to show you a story where all this comes together as we finish this morning. In Luke chapter 22, <coughs> Jesus is celebrating Passover, the Last Supper, with his disciples. He sent them in. Passover is a humongous deal to them. God had given the Passover meal to his people, the Jewish people, as a way to remember all of the miracles that he had done in their lives when he rescued them out of slavery from the hands of the Egyptians. And so every year they would eat this meal together and it was the same food and it was the same process and they would sit around a table and just a second it's going to say they were reclining at the table because the table wasn't like our table, it was more like a, a coffee table in our world, but along and they would sit around it and the youngest of them would sit right hand here next to the host and the youngest child's job was to ask specific questions, not questions that they made up, but specific questions that would spur on the retelling of the story of how God had rescued the Israelites out of slavery. And, and so everything is set. Jesus has sent a couple of his disciples ahead and the food's all ready. And there they are around the table, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he's saying, this is my last meal. Then he took a cup and after gave thanks and said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant I establish by my blood. It is shed for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me, for the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do this thing. So they're arguing. Now the only reason an argument would happen is if there was some accusation. Because if Peter goes, oh, Jesus, I, I, I hope it's not me. Is it me? I hope it's not me. And John says, I, I hope it's not me. Is it me? I don't want it to be me. I hope it's not me. It may be me, but I, I hope it's not me. And then Philip chimes in and he's like, is it me? I don't, I don't want it to be me. Then James is over there and he's like, I don't think it's me. I don't want it to be. There's no arguments. There's only arguments when somebody goes, it's not me, it's him. It's not me, it's you. And they go, no, it's not me, it's you. And here Jesus is 
saying, here's my broken body and, and my shed blood. And then it goes on. Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. So they, they transition from accusing one another of being the betrayer to, well, I'm not the betrayer because I'm the best one of us. You know, you're not, the, you're not the best one of us. You're number four. I'm number one. Jane's number two. That guy's number three. I don't even remember his name, but he's number three. Simon the Zealot, you're number three. But what's important is I'm number one. No, I'm number one. You're number five. They're, they're arguing. Right? And we all get rank. We all get rankings. Some of you are in the military. So you understand rankings. Ranking. Some of you watch a lot of NCIS. So you understand rankings. And then even in our business, we understand rankings. In your organization, the lowest person on the totem pole is the intern. The intern's job, two jobs. Show up happy and do whatever you're told to do. That's it. That's all an intern does. That's where I started as a minister. Started as an intern. Showed up happy because nobody likes interns that don't show up. And nobody likes grumpy interns because you're like, you're an intern. You're bothering more me more than the work you're accomplishing. Go away. So show up happy or don't show up at all. And, and so there I was, intern. And eventually I got promoted because in my organization at this church, there was intern. That was the lowest one. Then there was assistant. And then there was associate. And then there were some positions after associate, but that just seemed like just wild fantasy that I would be more than that. And so, so I just got promoted from intern to assistant. Now, there was only about a nickel's worth per hour of difference between an intern and an assistant. But I was, man, I was proud about being an assistant. Promoted. It's awesome. But every once in a while in a meeting or at a lunch or some introduction, somebody would say, this is Curtis, our intern. And something would flare up in me. not an intern, I'm an assistant. Because rank matters. We want, we, we want to make sure that we're ranked appropriately. It just happens. And look what Jesus says in the midst of them trying to rank one another. The kings of the Gentiles dominate them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. This is Jesus' way of saying, like, you guys are doing what the Gentiles do. You're doing what the unbelievers do. But it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and whoever leads like the one serving. So he says, you guys are jockeying around for positioning yourself, but really you should be like this little one here who's asking all the questions spurring around, spurring on the story. Or more than that, you should try to worry about what order you're in. You should be like the one who's coming and refilling our glasses and taking away our food. What Jesus is saying is, have ambition, but let your ambition be to be the intern and not the CEO. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then leverage your ambition to be a servant. Leverage your life, leverage those million tiny decisions to serve and not to overcome people. And he says, but the ones who stood, you are the ones who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom just as my father bestowed on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, I got your future handled 
just fine. So until then, be the least. I got all the honor you could ever want coming to you. So until then, be the smallest. I got all the praise and all the thrones to last an eternity. You be an intern. Because selfish ambition and envy, which these disciples have in spades, it does not look good at the table of Jesus. When he's breaking the bread and saying, this is my body. And he's lifting up the cup and saying, this is my blood shed for you. My desire to be number one or number two or to get even or to get over, it just looks bad. We follow Jesus. So let's not follow him to first place. Let's follow him into a kingdom internship this week. So God, we pray just ask that you would make that happen. And I just personally be the first one to say, I need your help to pull that off. God, I pray that you would just stir in us a humility that is supernatural, that can only come from heaven's wisdom. follow you into the lowest place today. If that's where you're going, that's where we're going. It's your name we pray.